Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. The title of the sermon is Salt, Light, and the Glory of God. And so once you're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So here's what our Lord Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives it and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning, first in thankfulness that we're able to gather together, we're able to assemble without fear of persecution at this moment, Lord, that we're able to uh, sing loudly and uh, we're able to um, pray corporately, we're able to also open up our Bibles and read from your word and hear what you have for us. So we thank you for that. God, we pray that you would be with us as we look at your word, that we would have the eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's from your word, that you would remove me as much as possible. We pray, Lord, that all of your people will be edified, built up, encouraged, and yet convicted by your word. And Lord, we also pray that those who don't know you would hear the gospel and be saved. And we pray that in everything, just as our text says, Lord, that you may get glory, God. And so we just pray all these things to you, and it's in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen. Please have a seat. I'm going to open with the question, and feel free to answer this one out loud, because I know that a lot of you know the answer. And so here's the question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Very good. The Westminster Catechism nailed that one. So I'm going to ask a different question that you don't need to answer out loud. How do we glorify God? If the chief end of man, if part of it is to glorify God, then how do we do it? See, it's really easy to give a pat answer to a catechism question that my end is to glorify God. But it's far more important to know how. How do we glorify God? The entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to that. It's the most famous sermon in history. This is Christ, our Lord, giving his kingdom manifesto to his disciples. And it's all about glorifying God. Now, first, he's told us how to be flourishing people. That was in the introduction or the Beatitudes. Pretty much what he was telling us is we will be flourishing people if we think and live rightly. So the flourishing person, then, is the one who, who is poor in spirit and mourns, is humble, hungers and thirsts for righteousness, is merciful, is pure in heart, is a peacemaker, and is persecuted because of righteousness. This is the person that glorifies God. But as believers, it's kind of hard for us at times to picture what it looks like to live as that, this kind of person. So for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will keep giving us concrete examples. Concrete example after concrete example that shows us what this looks like. 
Our text this morning is the first of those concrete examples. How do I glorify God with my life? Well, the text answers. And so to give you the main point of the text up front, it's this. The Christian life, when faithfully lived, demonstrates God to the world. The Christian life, when faithfully lived, demonstrates God to the world. And that's how we glorify him. By living that that Christian life, which demonstrates God to the world. Now, why? Why does does this uh, glorify him? Why does this um, demonstrate God to the world? Well, Jesus tells us why in the text by appealing to two real world analogies, salt and light. And when we understand what it means to be salt and light, we will understand what it means to live a faithful Christian life. We will understand how and why that life then demonstrates God to the world. And when that happens, as our text says, we most definitely glorify God. We are most definitely living up to part of the chief end of man. So, as we continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount, please understand that this passage about salt and light is really, in one sense, a transitional passage. And what I mean by that is that the Beatitudes, Jesus just got done telling us about our glorious future. What did he tell us? He said, we will be comforted. He said that we will inherit the world. We will be perfectly righteous forever. We will see God with our eyes. We will be shown total mercy and we will be sons of God. Okay, Jesus is now moving us from that glorious future into what our life must look like right now. Okay, in light of that glorious future, how are we supposed to live right now? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is ultimately all about. And so again, it's that kind of life, the life that lives right now in light of our future, that's the kind of life that glorifies God. So with that, we could get into our passage. Ultimately, this passage is presenting us with a command. Jesus is commanding us to live a Christ-like life so that the world will glorify God. Verse 16, we'll get there, but you can look at it really quickly. That is essentially what Jesus is saying. But what happens is we tend to overcomplicate things. We ask the Lord, well, how do I do it? What does it look like? And we usually expect some crazy detailed answer that then seems impossible to us to then justify us not doing what we're supposed to do. That's why Jesus doesn't start with verse 16. He starts with verses 13, 14, and 15 to give us two really simple examples of what this means, salt and light. That way, we will not overcomplicate it. With these very ordinary things, he's going to make very simple what we tend to desimplify. I don't even think that's a word, but that's what we do. So, the first of those ordinary things is salt. Look at the first part of verse 13. Jesus declares, you are the salt of the earth. Now, it's worth noting that in the Greek, Jesus is super emphasizing the word you. It's almost, it's kind of, not kind of, the word you is there twice. It's in the verb and it's also there as the word you. So he's saying you twice. He's going out of his way for you to see yourself in what he is saying. It's kind of like this. I could say to you that you are my my loyal friend and you would understand what I mean. Okay, he's saying that I'm his friend. But if I said the same thing while pointing at you, like, you, Albert, are my loyal friend, or I grab your shoulders and say, you are my friend, then in your head, you now know I'm emphasizing the word you. It's more than just a statement about being friends. Instead, it's you yourself are my friend. I'm focusing on the you of the statement. 
Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's pointing at each one of us with his finger and he's saying, you yourself, you are salt. Salt for the whole earth. Don't you forget it. Now, it is a really, really big deal for Jesus to say this about each of his followers. Salt, we might not realize this, but it was one of the most valuable items in the ancient world. Sometimes people were actually paid their wages in salt rather than money. That's how valuable it was to that world. So the question is, what does Jesus mean by calling us salt? Well, one of the the big commentaries that, that I read, it listed 11 possible meanings that would be at home in the ancient world. So I'm going to spend the next 90 minutes going over. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to bore you with all 11 of those. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what the original audience sitting at his feet near the Sea of Galilee, what they would naturally think when they hear this. That would then help us understand what Jesus is saying about us too. Everyone back then used salt for two major things. First, they used salt to flavor food. We do the same thing today. If a particular meal is bland in taste, what do we do? We often add salt No different 2,000 years ago. The second thing they used salt for is they used it as a preservative. They did not have refrigerators or freezers back then. So if you wanted to preserve your food, especially your meats, you would cover them in salt. Now, modern science could explain how this works for us. Salt draws out the moisture of the food, which then prevents the microbes growing that would spoil it. Those microbes absolutely cannot grow or live in salt. And so, as far as historians could tell, the ancient Egyptians figured this out. They probably didn't know about little microscopic bacteria, but they knew if we don't put the meat in salt, it spoils and we get sick. If we do put the meat in salt, it lasts a very long time and we don't get sick. Okay, so they understood that. By the time you get to the first century, these two uses of salt were practiced by just about everybody. So when Jesus declares to his followers that they are the salt of the earth, they would immediately say, so what is he saying? He's saying that we flavor the world and we preserve the world. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But there's also something else his audience would probably think about in addition to this. We often forget that his audience, his first audience there, was entirely Jewish. They have been raised on the Old Testament their whole life, especially in synagogue on Shabbat. They would have the Torah or the first five books of the Bible read to them every single year. The faithful also would read it to their children as Deuteronomy chapter 6 commands. They would do so daily. Also, at the Shabbat services, they would hear much of the prophets read there as well. And the reason I tell you all that is because salt is very significant in the Old Testament. When God gave the Old Covenant to Israel, when he committed himself to them to be their God and for them to be his people, he gave them what he calls a covenant of salt. I don't know if you knew that, but he does. In fact, when he talks to the whole nation about their grain offerings, he tells them they need to put salt in it because the whole covenant's a covenant of salt. Look at Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. He says, You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. So God calls the, the salt the salt of the covenant. And he's going to do this again in Numbers chapter 18, verse 19, 
But this one's kind of a little peculiar because now he's not talking about all of Israel, but just the priests, the priesthood. And in Numbers 18, verse 19, he says, I give to you and your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statute. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord for you as well as your offspring. So hopefully you noticed that as well. He tells the priest that you're going to live off the tithes and the contributions given by all of Israel, and this is a covenant of salt for you and your descendants. Well, this is going to come up again, but now it's going to be narrowed down even more to one guy, the, the sons of David, the king of Israel. In 2 Chronicles 13.5, it says, Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? So again, we see this theme continue throughout the Old Testament. And I want you to notice something. When God makes a permanent covenant with people, he calls it a covenant of salt. And so he starts broad with Israel. He has this nation. It's his nation. And he calls them in Exodus to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests that will shine the light of God to other nations. Now, that should sound a little familiar to what Jesus is saying in our text. But then within the nation of Israel itself, okay, so they they got a covenant of salt. But within the nation itself, now it narrows down to the priests and they shine the light of God in a deeper way to Israel. They equip Israel. So that Israel could shine the light to the nations. And that equipping ministry is also a covenant of salt. And then God narrows it down even further to the one man, the representative of the whole nation, the king of Israel, who is supposed to lead the nation in righteousness. He leads the nation in righteousness and faithfulness to God as the priests equip the nation. And then as the nation shows the glory of God to the whole world. And all of this is described as covenants of salt. So what's my point with this? It's this. Salt was used in the Old Testament to display God's covenant with his people at all of its levels. And God promised that when the days of the Messiah come, it's going to be a new covenant. And if God's covenants are always covenants of salt, then so too will that new covenant. And so it would be a covenant better than the old, but still a covenant of salt. Well, here you have this man. Jesus, Yeshua, he arrives on the scene doing miracles that have never been seen. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And he is now using the language of the covenant of salt to let his followers know exactly who he is as the king of Israel and who they are as God's covenant people. They are the salt of the earth. He is the son of David and they are God's covenant people. And as such, they are the salt of the earth. They are the people then that God will use to flavor and preserve the world. And my point with this is it's not just like you could tell, say anybody is salt and light. Only God's covenant people can be the salt of the earth. And I know that's a lot of explanation of what Jesus's first audience would have thought when they heard him proclaim that they're the salt of the earth. But I gave it so it would help us later not overthink and not overcomplicate the Christian life. Remember, The point of Jesus in these four verses is that we must live righteous lives through Christ and this will get the world's attention. And when it gets the world's attention, it gets our God glory. That's ultimately where Christ is going with this. And so that we won't overcomplicate it, he makes it real simple. Listen, let me explain how this works. You're salt, you're light, you're the salt of the earth. And what does salt do? 
It flavors, it preserves, and it represents the covenant people of God and their mission to show the whole world who the one true God is. That's what it means for him to say, we are the salt of the earth. And so if you are a real Christian, you are salt. And so what he's saying is live like it. Pretty simple, huh? Now, in a minute, I'm going to unpack what it means for us to flavor and preserve and show the world our God. But first, Jesus gives us a warning with this analogy. It's not all happy. Okay, let's, let's read the rest of verse 13. Jesus asks a question, and then he answers it. He says, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, what is the Lord getting at here? Well, what makes salt good for food? It's taste. What if it loses its taste? Is it still good for flavoring things? No. In fact, it's only good for the garbage can. In fact, that's the equivalent of them just throwing it outside for people to walk over as they go about their business, meaning it's so useless, just toss it. We would put it in a trash can because we're more civilized or whatever. But, you know, the fact is that's just him saying it's useless, so you throw it away. Now, sometimes you're going to have some snooty skeptics read this. They'll be like, Hi. well, I don't know if they do that laugh, but they'll say this makes no sense. They'll say salt is a chemically stable substance, and it's actually impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. Jesus is not talking about the molecular integrity of sodium chloride. We need to remember we're talking about ancient salt. It was harvested from salt pits and salt mines. And in Israel, most of the salt came from the Dead Sea. And in the Dead Sea, you have a whole bunch of other minerals that get mixed in with the salt. In fact, they sell a lot of beauty products over there and try to convince you that it'll make you look a lot younger, all those other minerals. But the point is, everybody knows that the salt in the Dead Sea gets just flooded with all these things that are not salt. And now what happens when you mix in too much other stuff with something that's concentrated? It dilutes it. So think about it this way. If I had a glass of water and I filled it 25% with 100% freshly squeezed orange juice, but then I filled the other 75% with water, you don't have 100% orange juice anymore. You have 25% and the flavor diminishes greatly. Well, what if I change the math? What if it's only 5% orange juice and 95% water? You could barely taste the orange at all. You just think you got some nasty water at that point. Okay, and so I think you get the point. The same thing can happen to salt. The more non-salt that gets mixed in with it, the more the salt flavor is diluted. It could get so polluted by other substances that it completely loses its flavor and its taste. And when that happens, Jesus says, it's useless. It's good for nothing, and it should be thrown away. Now, I want us to picture what he's saying. He's first saying, you are the salt of the earth. It is your job to show the world the flavor of God and his ways. It is your job to bring some level of preservation to this world. And as long as salt is undiluted, it can do that. It can flavor. It can preserve. But when it gets diluted, it can do neither. And what dilutes the salt? Other elements mixed in with it. So again, what do you think Jesus is getting at here? 
Salt is noticeably salty precisely because it's distinct from everything else around it. You could taste it because it's like nothing else. But if you mix everything else into it, then you can't taste it anymore. You can't even tell it's there. It's no longer distinct. So again, what's the point? If you let worldliness seep into your life, you dilute the godliness that is given to you through salvation. If you cuss like the world, your Christianity is not distinct from the world. If you watch pornography and commit sexual immorality like the world, your Christianity is not distinct from the world. If you gossip like the world, your Christianity is unnoticeable. If you live for comfort and you avoid inconvenience at all costs, then your Christianity is absolutely invisible. If you talk about work, family life, vacations, retirements, and hobbies with the people of the world, which in and of itself, that's fine. But if you never talk about Christ, then your speech is indistinguishable from theirs because it looks like what drives you most of all is what drives them most of all. But we're just supposed to be driven by something else. If you talk about politics all day, but you never bring up scripture and explain that God's moral standards are the foundation of right politics, then there is no distinction between your political speech and theirs. Whether you're conservative or not, if Jesus is not at the center, it is useless. Jesus said that salt like that is useless to God. It is useless to the kingdom. It is only good for being tossed out. In the same way, the person that claims to be a Christian but does not live a distinctly Christian life is a person that is, according to Jesus, useless to the kingdom of God. The way we live matters, loved ones. It does. And if that doesn't cause us to examine ourselves, then we should be the most worried of people. This should really have us examining ourselves. Are we distinctly Christian? Now, there may be some who are thinking, well, I don't do what the world does, so I'm not mixed with worldliness. Okay, but let me ask a follow-up question, if that's you. When is the last time you told the unbeliever the gospel? When's, how often do you tell unbelievers about the gospel? When's the last time you spoke with your coworkers about Jesus and the Bible and things of the scripture? When's the last time on an issue you said, thus saith the Lord? When's the last time you pointed at the horrendous sins of our society, things like abortion and the mutilation of children and things like that, and you say, you know what, this is wrong, and God has fixed the day of judgment, and he's going to call all of this into account. How many of us are scared? And we put a lid on it and we say nothing about, about Jesus and nothing about God's standard as we see the world, you know, completely just throwing their, their fist in the air at God. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does that have to do with being the salt of the earth? Well, it has everything to do with it. Dilution or diluting the salt isn't the only way to make the salt useless. Salt is also useless if it forever stays in the salt shaker. If it stays in the salt shaker, it's useless. Salt in the salt shaker flavors nothing. It's simply in contact with other salt. It can't become more salty that way. can't become less salty, but nobody will ever know. There are some churches that operate on, on, on the principle of us, you know, us four and no more, or you know, maybe a little more than four, but they just want to be a little group of friends cut off from the world. That's salt in the salt shaker. And sometimes people just keep their Christianity private. That's salt in the salt shaker. If the purpose of salt is to flavor and preserve, then salt that never comes out in public neither flavors nor preserves. That's the point. It might as well be thrown away too. 
And this is one that many of us Americans could relate with. The treadmill in the basement that is never used ain't going to make anybody skinny. We know that. We know that. So why even have it take up space? Just for the potential that it'll be used? A potentially used treadmill is still an unused treadmill. Potentially used salt is still unused salt. Now, once you get on that treadmill, it's useful. Once that salt gets out of the shaker, it's useful. Okay, so the point is simple. Salt is distinct from all other things, or the distinction of salt from all other things is only meaningful when it comes in contact with all other things. Salt only functions as salt when it engages. It has to engage. Likewise, the Christian life is only a distinctly Christian life when it comes in contact with non-Christians. The Christian life is only distinctly Christian when it engages the world. That means being a disciple of Jesus means we are to be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom. And what this means, loved ones, is inward holiness is not enough. Only focusing on inward holiness doesn't do it. If it's a true inward holiness rather than a self-righteous piety, then it will be expressed or produce a witness of public exposure. It's that simple. There will be an outward focus of our holiness and our living and our preaching. Jesus said, you yourself are the salt of what? The earth. And that's another thing we have to consider. The salt of the earth. You are not just the salt of your own family. You're not just the salt of your own church. And you're not just the salt of your own nation. That's something the early disciples would eventually learn. And I think that's something we have to learn too. No, Jesus says you're the salt of the earth. You yourself, Jesus' finger is pointing at you, Christian. You are the salt of the earth, the whole earth. So that means our local community, our church, but also the world. So how do you function as such salt First, keep yourself pure by not mixing in the worldliness. Second, get out of the stinking salt shaker. That's how we do this. That's how we do this. Now, when these two ideas are combined, that we're to remain unsoiled from the world and engage the world, when these two are combined, we do bring flavor to the world. And you know, sadly, when I was reading R.C. Sproul on this, he made a, or Sproul, he made a really good point. He, said, he pointed out, and I think we all know this, that the world has this impression that Christians are just a bunch of fuddy-duddies that have no fun. He didn't use the word fuddy-duddy. That was my translation. We above everybody else should be those that enjoy the world the most. We should be those who are most filled with a, a love for life, those who have a contagious sense of joy. We should wake up every morning with that psalm in our head that this is the day the Lord has made. We should enjoy it. We should enjoy creation. Enjoy food because it comes from the Lord. God designed your taste buds to light off fireworks when you bite into a ripe peach. He designed your palate to dance for joy when you combine many ingredients and many foods and flavors to make even new and more flavors. He designed your legs if you're still healthy. He designed your legs to climb those mountains to our south so that with your eyes you could take in the glory and magnificence of the creation that he made. He designed us to enjoy these things. He designed you and your spouse to where when you selflessly engage each other in the very union that God designed you for, it satisfies both of you. He made it that way. 
God created sound so that our ears could receive it and you could enjoy the sound of rain falling as we're getting to hear it today. And you could enjoy the sound of thunder and the sound of birds singing. And you could enjoy the sound of music as we can sing to the Lord in worship. That was made for all of us to enjoy. Now the world, their problem is they want to distort all this stuff. They distort these good gifts and so they pervert food with gluttony. They pervert physical health with vainglory where it's all about pictures and filters and surgical enhancements. That's wrong, okay? They pervert music with raunchy lyrics and purity with fornication. Saying no to those perversions is not being a fuddy-duddy. But at the same time, when we act like we can't enjoy anything, that is being a fuddy-duddy. And we don't want to be fuddy-duddies. So as salt, we are called to show the world just what it's like to live in the world created by God for our good and his glory. Now, when you engage in their perversions, you have diluted your salt. And there's absolutely nothing distinctive about your Christian walk that will draw them. But when, and when you abstain from all fun, period, well, then your potential salt rather than real salt and nothing about the Christian life will look appealing. But when you enjoy the gifts of God in this world with true gratitude, making the most of them all, well, then the world will see a different kind of fun, how fun is supposed to be, and they'll see it specifically in us. They'll see us use the world in a way that does not destroy the environment, but refines it. They'll see us enjoy food without the unhealthiness. In our marriages, they'll see the very love and loyalty that they long for, but they never achieve since they're always going against God's design. They'll see in our families kids that are raised right, and they grow up ready for adulthood, ready to contribute to society, and to start to, they'll start to realize that God's design, like stable families, creates a stable society, and that stability then produces flourishing. And a society that allows for flourishing then creates an environment of fun and enjoyment. And there's a greater sense of satisfaction. We can show that to them by the way we live. And so, loved ones, the point is this. If we truly lived righteous lives, we would indeed flavor the earth in such a way that it would create a longing in the hearts of a lot of unbelievers, a lot of the lost. You want to know why? Because they, for their whole lives, have tried all the wrong ways, all the distortions, and they are unsatisfied. Even if they lie and tell you they're satisfied, they're not. All of our socially sanctioned narcissism, where people are encouraged to define themselves however they want, even against reality, and have everybody affirm it, that has not helped. Anxiety, depression, all those metrics have gone up. Yet they'll tell you to say, nope, nothing to see here. This helps, this helps, this helps. And it doesn't. The numbers don't lie. Okay, these people are only more anxious, more depressed. This is across all sectors of society. As salt, we could show them the better way. They could see that we have what they long for and what keeps escaping their grasp. But you want to know why they can't see it in our society? It's because many of us have settled for the two extremes I've already mentioned. We've either, mixed, we've either mixed, or we've already, a lot of us, mixed selfishness and sin into our marriages, in our parenting, in our way of speech, our lifestyle, and our life goals. And so then the world looks at us, and they see the same chaos in our lives as they do in theirs. When we then publicly oppose sin, we seem like odious hypocrites because we've lost our saltiness. And that's the problem. 
Our spouses also in the home start to see us this way. And our kids see us this way. And our society sees us this way. There's a reason why the younger generation's abandoning the church. It's not because the truths of Christianity aren't compelling. They're the most compelling truths out there. It's because we live in contradiction to them. So that's one problem. That's one problem. The second extreme is if, if we haven't mixed worldliness into it, then maybe we're just still in the salt shaker. And we got this private holiness, but we don't engage the world. Both extremes prevent us from showing the world a better way. It, they prevent us from flavoring the world with Christ and his goodness and the derivative results of his goodness. Salt, also another thing, a point that Sprawl made, is salt provokes thirst. And when we live as the salt Christ has called us to be, then the watching world might just be thirsty enough to drink from the same waters that we have drank from. And then when we add to this, because I've been talking more about flavor, when we add to this the idea that salt preserves, then even more so will they look at God and glorify him. Believers in Jesus preserve human flourishing by promoting the good, the right, and the just, and we oppose the bad, the wicked, and the unjust. We preserve human flourishing by loving our neighbor as ourselves. We preserve human flourishing by engaging in the cultural mandate, and I'll explain what that means in a minute, but engaging in the cultural mandate and exercising dominion over the world. We create stable societies when we point people to God's moral standards and convince the civil authorities to govern by such standards. We further stabilize society when we fight hard to preserve the family because we know the family is the basic building block of any society, especially if a society is going to be stable. Now, the Christian church over the course of its 2,000-year history has certainly functioned as a preservative and of course, if you're an unbeliever or even as a believer, you've probably heard this one um, launched at us a lot. A lot of times unbelievers will say that, oh, the church has a horrible record, crusades, and you know they start listing these bad things. And it's true, there is a bad record from some people who misrepresented Christ. But when you look at the total, the, the net whole, the church has been a force for good in this world. It has been a preservative. Overwhelmingly, it has been salt. How many of you take for granted public education, not when it's distorted and used as, you get what I'm saying. Public education's a Christian idea. You know that? We're the ones who made it up. How many people think it's, oh, it's great that there's a university you could go to to get extra educated. The university was invented by the Christian church. How many of you think orphanages are good? Because you know what? In all societies, orphans were left out to die. Or fend for themselves. But Christians said, no, they're made in the image of God, so we create systems to care for them. These abandoned children are taken care of because they're made in the image of God. Slavery, this great evil, was abolished. It was abolished on biblical arguments. Medical health is a Christian innovation, meaning the hospital system was the brainchild of Christian societies. The scientific revolution that gives us our knowledge of the world and our technology was entirely founded in the 15 and 1600s by Christians trying to glorify God and trying to figure out how his creation works in order to increase our flourishing. And I could go on and on. 
Civilizations devoid of the church's influence did not bring to the world any of these good things I've mentioned. And and if you don't want to just take a Christian's word for it, in the 1800s, a very famous sociologist named Max Weber compared Christian societies versus the rest of the world to try to figure out why did science develop in the West? Why did public education, hospitals, the Industrial Revolution, why did all this come in the West? And he came to the conclusion it's because of Christianity. So we have been that salt, that preservation, and it needs to continue to be that way. The permeation of Christianity has led to a lot of good, but we got to be real. we got to be honest. It's also true that the church's salt and light have been very weak in our land for a very long time. And, and it's mainly because of the way we've been living. We've settled for pragmatism, seeker-sensitive stuff, comfort, all that. And as a result, we, by and large, look indistinguishable from the world. And so now the world is trying to push all vestiges of Christianity out. And it's not working for them. It's resulted in less stability, more chaos, more crime, more ravaged families, more slaves today than there's ever been in the form of sex trafficking, more poverty, and the list could go on. America's cities are a big mess as from pushing Christianity out. So the question is, what can we do as believers and as a church Some people will craft answers that don't work. Some will say, leave the blue states for the red. That is not functioning like salt because you're not flavoring or preserving. You're just taking it elsewhere to make other food more salty. No, that's not the answer. Some will go as far, well, we need to revolt with our arms. We need to take take up weapons and have a revolution. I don't even think I need to address that one being wrong. Others will say elections. And I do want to say, yes, we should be trying to get the right people elected that will promote God's standards. But that's not what's going to save America. That's one thing that, that can help it, but it'll fall short. The question is, what can we do? You yourself be undiluted by worldliness, and you yourself engage our society and the world with the gospel. Okay, We do that first. And then as the church, the second thing we do related to that is we build up, we put out, we, we raise up uh, Christian artists and scientists and historians, and educators, and politicians, and we flood the society with them. That's the cultural mandate. Somewhere along the line, we've let the world tell us we're not allowed to be part of that. That Christianity is just here in the church, and it's in the home. And that's why we're in the problem we're in. No, being the preservation agent of society also means we are producing these kind of folks to go out into the world and show them that our art, and our science, and our history, and our education, and our politicians are better than theirs. Better than what they're able to do because we're built on a better foundation. Most importantly, we need to strengthen our Christian, not most importantly, but very importantly, we need to strengthen our Christian families. Okay, we just need to. And yet, in all this, you need to order your life entirely around the gospel and not this temporary world. The Bible tells us again and again that this world is passing away. So yes, while we're here, We're supposed to seek the good of the city, according to Jeremiah, the good of the city that we're in, okay? But creating a Christian culture and stable family, if that's all we're doing, that misses the point if we're not actively trying to win every single soul we can for Christ. Remember, that's what it means to be salt. That's how we will face this growing darkness. 
No matter what view of the end times any of us have, all positions should agree on this point, that we're undiluted from the world, we engage the world, we push the, 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 the cultural mandate, and we do these things for flourishing, but above all, we are trying to win souls for Christ until he returns. That's the goal, right? And we show God's flavor, and we preserve what should be preserved precisely because we are his covenant people called to be salt in the world. So simply, we fight the growing darkness by being what Jesus calls us to be here. It's that simple. Now, I've spent a lot of time talking about Jesus's first real-world analogy, which is salt. So now I need to move to the second, which is light. He's not only calling for us to be salt, but light. And with both examples, he's saying mostly the same thing. But there's a, a few distinct points uh, from light, where it'll add to what he said about salt. But before I, I get to that, let's look at what he says about light so we could understand it. In the first part of verse 14, Jesus says this. He says, you are the light of the world. And just like with the salt, the word you is there twice. He is emphasizing you again. You yourself are the light of this world. And this is amazing, an amazing declaration. It might have passed by you at first, or maybe it didn't. But the reason why this is such an astounding claim is what Jesus says of himself in John 8, 12. He says, it says, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. It's very interesting. Jesus is the light of the world. Yet he's telling us that all who believe in him will themselves have the same light of life. And that's why he could say in our text, we are the light of the world. It's because he's the light. And as long as we are in Jesus, then we reflect his light. You could think of it this way. He's the sun, we're the moon. You know, on a, on a full moon, dark night, uh, that's, that moon shines really brightly. But it's not its own light. It's reflecting the light of the sun. And it's the same way for us. Jesus is the light. But as his followers... We can be the light in the world or his light in the world because we reflect his own perfect light. Now, our Lord's original Jewish audience would have appreciated this statement about being light because remember, they hear the prophets read every week and at least once a year, they would hear certain passages from the prophet Isaiah. And I, it was a number of sermons ago in Matthew. I talked about a special group of Isaiah's sermons or prophecies that are called the servant songs. In these prophecies, Isaiah talks about God calling Israel to be a light to the world. But then the prophecies also talk about God calling a single individual that represents Israel to be a light to both Israel and the world. In fact, Israel's rebellion and their sin caused them to fail to reflect God's light. So God raised up this single person that we call the Messiah, the single person to save Israel and to save the world. That individual is Jesus. Now, speaking specifically of the Messiah, look what Isaiah says. There's a number of times he says this in the servant songs, but I'll just quote one of them. Um, Isaiah 49.6, God says this, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So here you have this individual prophesied, right, that will restore Israel but be a light to the nations. He will be salvation to the ends of the earth. When Jesus stood up 
and declared, and I believe it was on Hanukkah, or no, it might have been during Sukkot. I'd have to go back and look in John 8. But when Jesus stood up and declared that he is the light of the world, he was saying, I am this guy that is spoken about in the prophet Isaiah that you've all heard about. And the servant songs, when you read them even closer, make it clear that the Messiah's people are also the light of the world. We also bring the salvation to the nations and beautiful are our feet for doing so. Now, why are we the light of the world as he's the light of the world? Because we are in union with him. So those from Israel and from the nations who believe in Jesus, we now join him in his mission of being a light to the world and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Doesn't that sound like the Great Commission? It sounds like it because it is. That's just how the Old Testament describes it. Jesus commands his disciples in Acts 1 to be his witnesses to the end of the earth precisely because he is the light of the world and in him we reflect that light. That is what we are. That is who we are. And so I want you to think about what what was just said here. Yes, light is a real world analogy like salt that helps us understand who and what we are, but Jesus, by calling us the light of the world, is also telling us our very existence, our very work, fulfills prophecy. Did you ever realize that you fulfill prophecy? We often think about Jesus fulfilling prophecy, or these kings or these events fulfilling prophecy. You, because you're connected to him, as you bring his light to the nations, you are fulfilling what was written 2,700 years ago. So we are fulfilling prophecy even in our own lives. It's just amazing. So, just like we're salt, we're light, and his point is not just to tell you this, but to show you what it means for your life. Remember what he said about salt? He said it's supposed to taste like salt. What if it doesn't? Well, it's useless. It it exists in contradiction to what it is, to its design. Well, he's going to tell us the same thing about light. He's going to give us two examples about it. So look at the rest of verse 14. He says, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, commentators will tell you, ah, he's probably talking about Sephoris, which you could see from Nazareth. It was a city on the hill, and you'd clearly see it lit up at night. Others will say, no, he's talking about this city on the north end of the Sea of Galilee that everyone from where he was preaching, they would know what city he's talking about. Some would say, no, he's talking about Jerusalem because it's on a hill. Listen, those are all wrong. Because he says a city on a hill. He's not talking about a specific city. He's talking about something that we all can relate with, that we can all understand. If a city's on a hill at nighttime, you can't not see it. Because those lamps are all ablaze, you're able to see it from quite the distance. And listen, we all know this. If you've ever driven the freeway at night, you know, when you're between cities, pure darkness. But then on the horizon, you start to see this bright orb of light. You know you're coming up to a city. It's all lit up. Okay, so he knows that we, we all instinctively know this. Now he, and so if a city on a hill can't be seen, something's up with that, right? Something's wrong. And likewise, with a lamp, he's going to give a similar example. Look at verse 15. He says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. Imagine turning on a flashlight in a dark room, and then covering it with 10 blankets to where you can't even see any of it. All you're doing is wasting the battery at that point. You're not using the light for its intended purpose. 
Well, back then, they didn't have flashlights. They had these little oil lamps. I should have brought one. I bought one in Israel. But you'd fill it with oil. Then there's this little wick that comes out of the end, and you light it, and it kind of burns like a candle. Just instead of wax, it's the, the olive oil that it's burning. Now, if you were to take that lamp and put it on a table and cover it with a bowl, not only would you be smothering the flame, you'd be defeating the purpose of the light. You still wouldn't be able to see anything. That's why Jesus said nobody would do that. That would be dumb. Who would do that? Instead, you take that light and you put it on a lampstand in the middle of the room and then it illuminates the room. Most houses back then were single room houses. So all it takes is one or two of those lamps in the middle of the room, elevated on a lampstand, and now you can see reality. You can see what is in the room, who is in the room, where things are at in the room. So what is the Lord's point here? It's the same as it was for the salt. If you cover the light, then what that means is you're living in such a worldly way that you look like darkness. You can't even see the light. Your worldly living snuffs out any semblance of the Christianity in your life. And the world can't tell that you're a Christian in that case because there's no light. It's useless. And another way you could look at it is if you cover the light, you're hiding it. And by hiding it, It might as well not be there. It's like salt that stays in the shaker. The fact is this. If you covered the light, people would not see what they need to see. And when you hide Christianity, the world remains blind. If you hide your righteous living, then they never see what right looks like. If you hide the gospel by not proclaiming it, then you never open the eyes of the blind so that they could see the Savior or that they need a Savior. They'll never know that they must believe in Jesus. In what sense are you even a light at that point if we don't tell them? One thing that's always stood out in a convicting way to me was the atheist magician, Penn Jillette, made the comment that if, if we believe in hell, if we believe eternal condemnation's real, he says for us not to tell unbelievers about it, he's like, how much do you have to hate someone in your heart to say nothing knowing that they are going to die and perish for all eternity. I'm like, man, even an unbeliever said that, right? In what sense are we being the light when we hide the light? We're not. And so that's what Jesus is getting at. In fact, he makes this point very clear in verse 16. This is when, now that he's given the two real-world examples, he's telling us what he wants us to do with this. He declares this, verse 16. He says, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is why I said the point of the text is the Christian life faithfully lived demonstrates God to unbelievers because that's what verse 16 says. Verse 16 is the point of the text. Salt and light are just how how he helps us understand this point. Why did he talk about salt? Why did he talk about light? So that he could say in the same way. That's the first words of verse 16. In the same way as these things, show the world your good works. You will flavor the world. You will function as its preservative. You will illuminate their darkness and their need for the light of the world who is Jesus our Lord. Now, I will say this. Some preachers like to overkill the fact that Jesus' statements are indicatives rather than commands. And what I mean is he doesn't command you, be salt, be light. And they get mad because people out there, you need to be salt. You need to be light. And like Jesus doesn't say that. He says you are salt. That's just what you are. And you are light. And that is true. Those are indicatives. But don't overplay that because verse 16 is a command. And it says in the same way 
as those things. And then it gives you a command. It's in the imperative mood. After Jesus declares we are salt and light, he then says, let your light shine before others. In fact, in the Greek, it would more literally be translated as shine your light before others. That is not a suggestion. It is a command. So yeah, I guess you could say technically speaking, he's not commanding us to be salt and light because as believers, we already are that, but he's telling us live like it. Live like it. Shine your light. If you never flavor and never preserve and never shine gospel light, then I don't know. Maybe we should be thinking like, am I even salt and light? Am I even a believer? Now, I believe better things about everybody here, but at the same time, we have to let Jesus' word at least penetrate, and and we need to think about it. Am I flavoring the world? Am I functioning as a preservative? Am I letting the world see my good works? Because that is how we will glorify God. That's what Jesus is saying. So yes, at the end of this, we do have a command from him. And, And so what does it mean then that you shine your light? He makes it as clear as day. He says, shine your light so, quote, that they may see your what? Your good works, end quote. That's how they see your light, your good works. It is your works that serve as the salt and the light. Believing the right things but not doing the right things is useless. James chapter 2 tells us that being a hearer and not a doer is useless. I believe he says it's like looking in the mirror and then forgetting what you look like. Jesus is the light of the world. And he did a bunch of stuff to show us what that looks like. He taught the truth. He helped the vulnerable. He corrected sin. And he died on the cross and rose from the dead. So we could look at him and say, yes, he's the light of the world. But then he sends us to carry his light to the world. And that doesn't happen if we're not living righteously, if we don't do good works. Good works are the good things that God commands us to do. And when you do those things consistently, you are salt that is tasty, that is distinct from the world. You preserve what should be preserved. Your works serve that end. Your works show the world what God desires humans to do. Your works expose the sins of the world. And one of the most important works we've all been assigned is telling others about Jesus. So yes, evangelism is one of our most important works. And if anything... Our text has shown us that evangelism is more than just speaking, if we're salt and light. In fact, uh, commentator Douglas O'Donnell rightly said this. He said, evangelism is declaring and demonstrating the excellencies of Christ for the glory of God. So we're to declare it and demonstrate it by what we do. Above all, that is how we will function as salt and light. Our message will be useless if our works are non-existent. I like the way that Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 18 puts it. It says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. And I want you to think about that. You know, before the dawn, it's pitch black. You could barely see anything. But then the sun comes up, and now you could see everything, but it's still kind of shaded. But you could see everything. That's our works, and, and the more we grow in them, it gets brighter and brighter until it's like noon. And at noon, you can see everything. It's the brightest part of the day. And so that's how we're supposed to see our works and the effect that they have before those who are witnessing them. Paul tells us something similar in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So if we're to walk in the light, there's fruit of that light. It's goodness, righteousness, and truth. Those are the things that it's supposed to produce in us. Jesus tells us at the end of verse 16 that when we do this, the watching world will, quote, give glory to your Father in heaven. And that's what this is all about. Remember, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Well, the glorifying God, we do it by living this way so that the world glorifies God. In fact, Jesus says this in John 15, verse 8. He says, my father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. That's how he is glorified. Peter, who was sitting at the feet of Jesus when he said all of this, also, you, you could tell he learned from his master. He says the same thing, just a little differently. 1 Peter 2.12, he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. So it's about conduct, right? Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. What Jesus is saying here, he makes sure the Holy Spirit says elsewhere in the word. And so ultimately, isn't this what we want? Don't we want the world to look at our Christian lives and say, their God must be God. Look at how they live. May that be our goal always. So going back to what I said near the beginning, we are to live a Christ-like life so that the world will glorify God. And we must not overthink and overcomplicate it. Salt and light are these two real-world analogies that Jesus gives to make it simple and show us in the clearest possible way what it means to live a Christ-like life that glorifies God. As God's covenant people, we reflect Jesus's light by our words and our deeds, and it has a flavoring and preserving effect that will cause many to glorify God. That's what this text showed us. It's that simple. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, but didn't Jesus say we're gonna be persecuted? Of course. That's what verses 11 and 12 say, but we still flavor and we still illuminate, right? We still preserve They persecuted Jesus worse than they'll ever persecute us. And yet the world has been illuminated by him to where millions upon millions have bowed the knee and glorified God. And whole empires have converted when they've seen how Christians still flavor and still preserve and still illuminate even in the midst of persecution. So again, yes, we will be persecuted, but many of the world will glorify God if we accurately and and consistently live as salt and light. So yes, Jesus is the light, and in him, we, Jew and Gentile together, we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world. So let's glorify our God by living in accordance with what Jesus says we already are. Amen? Amen? And for any unbeliever, I say this, you likely realize that everything you have chased after has failed to satisfy you. It is like chasing after a wind. It's vanity. You also likely have realized that the things you have valued and the philosophies and the beliefs you've clung to, they've not made you salt and light, not even close. Instead, you've contributed to the rot of this world. And the problem is that the answers of the world are many, but they do not lead to flourishing. They don't make you wise, and they don't address your biggest problem. And your biggest problem is this. You are a sinner. You're a sinner estranged from God, and he has every right and every prerogative to condemn you forever. But I hope you listened carefully today, because God sent Jesus to be a light to the world. Jesus then sends his people to be salt and light. Why? One reason is to glorify God, but a second reason is to show you, the unbeliever, that there's a better way. 
God sends us to show you because he is willing to save you. God sends us to show you that God is real, to show you that he is willing to save you, to show you that he is ready to have you glorify him. That is grace. That is grace. And so we call on you as God summons you to turn from your sins and to believe on Jesus as Lord, to trust in him for your salvation, that that he is God. He became a man. He lived a perfectly righteous life and he took the penalty of believers on the cross and died for us. And then he rose on the third day. And that absolute forgiveness is available in him and him alone. If you turn from your sins and trust him and confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't walk out of here still chasing after things that will not satisfy. Believe on the Lord, be saved, and you also will be that salt and light that uh, can flavor, preserve, and illuminate the world. We're going to pray, and we're going to be prepared, or we're going to prepare for the Lord's Supper. And again, if there's any unbeliever, just you could pray to God. Ask him for forgiveness. Surrender your, your heart to Jesus, and then afterwards, come talk to one of us, and we'll gladly tell you more. That being said, let's go to our Lord in prayer.